Thank you for listening to the Christ Church Showmans. This is Jared Sparks, one of the pastors at Christ Church Carbondale. We want to thank you so much for listening, as Ransom said, my son. And we ultimately hope that these are God-honoring. And because they are God-honoring, we hope that they are also edifying and encouraging and, and challenging to you in the best sort of way. Thanks so much for listening. We're going to wrap it up today. The sermon title this morning is Hosea's Final Plea. Hosea's Final Plea. We've seen that Israel and Judah are unfaithful. We've seen that judgment is coming. We've seen that God is going to save some, a remnant. And we've seen and heard Hosea call for repentance towards God's people on multiple occasions. We've seen the word return on multiple occasions. And we've seen that God's people should always repent and we should always turn back to the way God would have us live. We've made connections with Old Testament Israel and the visible church of today. And we're going to wrap everything up today. And uh, we're going to do it by two different ways. You know, some people love going on vacation and they love taking the drive to get where they're going. And one of the reasons why people love taking the drive to get where they're going is that they can stop at every single historical marker. They can stop at uh, Bucky's, like Brandon likes, and get uh, some trinkets or whatever you get at Bucky's. You can stop along the side of the road and take every scenic route and just enjoy the view. And a part of the vacation is the drive. And you get to see unique perspective from that drive because you get to see the things along the way that you wouldn't see if you flew to your destination. And then there's others that are like, you know, forget driving, I want to fly. And when you fly, you get to see a unique perspective that you don't get when you're driving. You don't stop along the way, but you get to see the big pictures. You get to see the topography. You get to see the rivers and there's advantages and disadvantages to both ways, driving or flying. So the first two chapters today, we're going to take the flyover. We're going to see the big picture in chapters 12 and 13, and we're going to see the big picture. We're going to see the hills and the valleys and the rivers. That's what we're going to do in those two chapters. We're going to see those. And then in chapter 14, we're going to slow down a bit and do what we've done for a majority of the book. There's been a couple times that we've taken the airplane view and, and, and covered a couple chapters at a time throughout this book, but we're going to slow down a little bit and we're going to take the, the scenic drive and we're going to see that valley, we're going to see that mountain, and we're going to see that Civil War statue or we're going to see that you know historical marker along the way. And so we're going to slow down when we get to chapter 14. But we first start by getting on the plane. Let's see the big picture of chapters 12 and 13, starting in chapter 12, verse 1 through 6. We're going to see a little bit of history In the history of Israel. If you're there, go ahead and turn your eyes, starting in verse 1. Ephraim feeds on the wind and pursues the east wind all day long. They multiply falsehoods and violence. They make a covenant with Assyria, and oil is carried to Egypt. The Lord has an indictment against Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. In the womb, he took his brother by the heel. And in his manhood, he strove with God. He strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He met God at Bethel. And there God spoke with us. And the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord is his memorial name. So you, by the help of your God, return and hold fast to love and justice and wait continually for your God. There is a history here with Israel, and we trace the name Israel all the way back to Jacob before his name was 
changed to Israel. We find that there was a wrestling in the womb with Jacob and Esau, and he grasped at Esau's heel. He strove with God as he got older. In fact, one of my favorite sermons that I've ever preached comes from the story of Jacob wrestling with God, and you can find that on the Genesis series on the website if you want. But Jacob strove with God and even prevailed. And there's a whole lot that goes into what that means. He met with God in Bethel. There's a long history with Jacob. And then as Israel grows into manhood and as a whole in the history of Israel, there's so much history between God and his people. And in verse 6, we see this appeal that happens. It's going to be repeated through the whole book or whole chapter of, verse, of chapter 14 when Hosea says to God's people, with the Lord's help, return to him. For God's people, no matter what they're doing in life, they never act independent from God. Even as the people of God, we remain dependent upon God to return to him, to obey him. There is a song that we sing, it's uh, by Sovereign Grace, and in the song it says, the strength to follow his commands could never come from me. You know, when we become a Christian and the Holy Spirit indwells us, we remain dependent upon God for the strength to face tomorrow, for the strength to obey him. We don't independently walk with God where we just say, God, we don't need you now. You've saved us. You've given us the Holy Spirit. And we don't need your help anymore. We've got this. We remain in a place of dependency forever. And we see that in this appeal from Hosea to God's people, return with the help of the Lord. Hold fast to judge judgment. By the help of your God, return in verse 6. Hold fast to love and justice. Don't be people that just talk, but hold fast to things that are true and right. Things like love and justice. And wait continually for your God. So we're making our ascent into the 30,000 feet where we fly. And we're looking down and we're seeing some pretty beautiful things right now. Okay? Let us hold fast. Let us return. Let us not just speak, but be people of action. As God is calling out to his people. And Hosea calls out to his people. He says, return with the help of your God. We find that there is uh, still corruption, and instead of returning to God, we've seen chapter after chapter, God's people have turned the other way. So they should have been walking towards God, they've been turning away from God and walking this way. That's why the appeal to return to God is always there. We see that Israel, they, they are corrupt down to the point of loving false balances, and when you think about false balances, what would happen, there's always been these kind of Ponzi schemes, there's always been corrupt people who find a way to rip people off. And one of the ways people found to rip people off over the years is having false balances, a scale that's not a true scale. We watched Cool Runnings a couple of weeks ago. You remember Cool Runnings, Jamaican bobsled team? Love that. You know, it's a great, great movie. In fact, my mom took me to see that. I don't know where dad was. Maybe you're at work. But my mom took me to see that when I was a kid, me and my buddy Derek Henson. We watched that two nights in a row because we loved it so much at the Dollar Theater in Marion. Just loved that movie. And at the end of that movie, you find that Coach... Erwin Blitzer, which is a, name up may, na, a made up name, he hid weights in the front of the sled to make it go faster because if you put weight on the front of the sled, the, the sled would go faster and then that's how he, went. He, he cheated. There's always been cheats and false balances are this way. And we see this picture of Israel with false balances that they've been deceitful. They've cheated. Look at verse 7. And we're going to look down through 9. A merchant in whose hands are false balances. This is Israel. He loves to oppress. Ephraim has said, ah, but I am rich. I have found wealth for myself and all my labors. They cannot find in me iniquity or sin. You can sniff out the pride. Verse 9, I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. I will again 
make you dwell in tents as in the days of appointed feasts. Israel, we find out, is like a bad merchant. They think they have made themselves wealthy. This is the, the pride of life that's always a temptation. The pride of life is there in, in all of us to look at the work of our hands and say, here is our God. And in chapter 14, we're going to see the correction in this. Israel got really into Israel at times in her history. She really got into her performance and thinking that she is something. And if we're not careful in our own life as individuals or as the church, it's easy to get pride. We, after all, in this room are those who, by the grace of God, have seen the truth. We see the silliness and the error of ridiculousness that's all around us. We see how foolish the ways of the world are. We see the world, the flesh, and the devil, and we look at it and we're like, especially in 2022, and we think, you guys are, are absolutely nuts. Just everywhere you go, you see everything, everybody's nuts. Everybody's crazy. You see it everywhere you go, and you just think, man, really, Apple, that's the kind of emoji you're going to give us in 2022 with a new update? Yippee. If you don't know, it's like I said earlier, there, it, uh, I can't even say it because it's just so ridiculous, but a new emoji... It's just the world is crazy, and it's easy for us. I've had to keep a check in my spirit to say, okay, God, I don't want to be prideful with an us-versus-them mentality of thinking, I'm wise, I'm not like them, because as the apostle Paul says, if it's not for the grace of God, there go I. Madness is mine apart from the work of the Holy Spirit in my life, apart from the grace of God. And here is Israel, they're looking at their wealth and their time of prosperity, and they're saying, ah, I'm rich, I have found myself, found wealth for myself, and in my labors, they can't find any sin. Israel is looking at their works, the work of their hands, and the wealth that they built, and they've said, listen, even though God says there's false balances there, they don't see it. They don't see their own sin. They, they see innocence in themselves. And I don't know about you, but that internal lawyer can come up inside of us and think, you know, I'm the justified one and everybody else is wrong. And at times the Holy Spirit will come and bring conviction and bring a Nathan into your life. And maybe it's a conversation with your wife. Maybe it's a conversation wives to your husbands when you realize it's like the, the light bulb goes off, the blinders, and they just all, the scales fall off and you realize, man, I've been walking in sin. Well, Israel didn't see that. They just, they, they're walking in blindness. And they were thinking there's no iniquity in us. None whatsoever. We are the ones that are walking free of iniquity. It says, I have, it says, in all my labors, they cannot find in me iniquity or sin. They are presuming their own innocence, and they ignored the prophets. They should have recognized that ignoring the prophets is a sign of sin. When the prophet speaks and the people don't listen, they should have recognized, wait a minute, we are walking in iniquity. And we see here that they just ignored the prophets. Look at verse 10 through 14. I have spoke to the prophets. This is God. It was I who multiplied visions. And God's saying, okay, you've had my word. There's been enough of my word. It's been multiplied. And through the prophets gave parables. And if their iniquity in Gilead, if they shall surely come to nothing in Gilgal, they shall sacrifice bulls. Their altars also are like steep, are like stone heaps on the furrows of the field. Jacob fled to the land of Aram. There Israel served for a wife, and for a wife he guarded sheep. By a prophet the Lord brought Israel up from Egypt, and by a prophet he was guarded. Ephraim has given bitter provocation. 
So his Lord will leave his blood guilt on him and he will repay him for his disgraceful deeds. Israel ignored the prophets. God spoke, multiplied visions, the prophet came, they declared, thus saith the Lord, and Israel did not listen. Judah, in time, did not listen. Ephraim did not listen. Samaria, the capital city of the northern country, did not listen. And because of that, their blood guilt remains. Blood is on their hands. This is a reminder to Israel, your blood is on your hands. It's on you. You think you're innocent. And in your innocence, you don't see this, but your blood is on your hands. You will be held guilty. You will be held responsible for your rebellion. The prophets come and listen, and you do that ear-plugging thing that we've been talking about, where they just plug their ears and don't listen. You're presuming your innocence, but you have guilt. And I tell you what, when God says you have guilt, it does not matter if you say back to him, no, I am innocent. And Israel can presume their innocence all they want. It doesn't matter their perception of truth. What really matters is the truth. Today, there's still, I mean, billions of people that are presuming their own innocence. I'm innocent. There's no blood on my hands. And if God brings judgment, he's wrong. And yet God is telling people all across this globe, there's blood on your hands. You have been the one that's put Jesus on the cross. And so they've ignored the prophets. And so we, we kind of like get a quarter of the way through the trip or a third of the way through the, tr the trip. We're still flying in the airplane. And I remember one time when I was 12 years old, my, my mom and dad sent me out and I got to go visit a Sunday school teacher to Las Vegas. And I remember the first time I flew on an airplane by myself when I was 12. I mean, remember that? Why in the world do you guys let me do that? Um, <clears throat> and we, I flew out there and I remember for the first time flying on a big, big jet airplane and, and seeing everything. And you think, you know, uh, you think when you're flying in an airplane, you're going to be able to see the details. You know, when you're, you're flying up, you, you imagine seeing the details and you realize you can't. You just see, you know, you just see the expanse. So here we see the expanse of chapter 13 or chapter 12. And we see a lot of beauty there and we see again judgment there and we see sin and failure there. And we, we get them, we move in. We move in, we see some more in chapter 13 of the big picture. And we see there's false gods. Look at chapter 13, verse 1 through 3. When Ephraim spoke, there was trembling he was exalted in Israel, but he incurred guilt through Baal and died. And now they sin more and more and make for themselves metal images, idols skillfully made of their silver, all of them the work of craftsmen. It is said to them, those who do offer human sacrifice, kiss calves. Therefore, they shall be like the morning mist or like the dew that goes early away, like the chaff that swirls from the threshing floor or like the smoke in the window. Israel, it's like God saying, okay, lest you forget here, everything that Hosea said, Israel, you've worshiped false gods. Baal worship in Ephraim leads to all sorts of false worship. They carefully crafted idols. This is the craftsman we talked about last week. A craftsman is very, pays very close attention to detail. The person that's framing up a house, Jeremy, you know this, when you're framing up a house, it's a totally different skill set from somebody who can go and come alongside and then beautify the staircase or beautify the casing. There's, it's a different skill set. One might be really good at the framing of the house and then may not be that, that good at the detail work. But then the craftsman can be really good at the detail work, but not all that great at the framing up of the house. Here, there's detail. There's time. There's attention in Israel, 
given toward the making of idols or false gods, the craftsman doing his craft. And it even led, in verse 2, we find a human sacrifice. Human sacrifice is anathema to God. The false gods would offer up even their children in acts of worship. There would be sex acts that are an abomination to the Lord given as an act of worship. Evil in their midst and it was tolerated. Human sacrifice is always the end of idol worship. And by the way, we don't see it because, again, we don't think idolatry exists in our day. Or at least we we still have blinders up. And we see how how much idolatry has happened in our country because you get to the point of human sacrifice, of the most vulnerable in a community. And there are people, doctors, that are making millions upon millions of dollars with human sacrifice in our country. And women who are committing human sacrifice in our country through murdering their children. It's a a multi-billion dollar industry, human sacrifice. What else is abortion but child sacrifice on the altar of narcissism? Or on the altar of sexual pleasure? And so they won't last. It, It ends up, it just, it destroys itself. It's what ends up happening. Idolatry ends up imploding. Secularism, we're seeing, ends up falling apart to the point that we've comically said that the Harvard professor, math professor, said that sometimes two plus two equals five. Now, if you get a, an engineer that thinks two plus two is equal, equaling five and he's on the infrastructure committee building bridges across this country, that's a bridge you don't want to drive across. Because idolatry implodes on itself. It just ends up being a burning ash, just a pile of garbage burning. And it gets to the point of human sacrifice. That's how wicked and evil idolatry is. It's not this neutral thing that doesn't lead to any other vile thing. It's just vile act after vile act that leads even to the point of something so evil. And so they don't last and it's a tragic tale. It's a story that's sad. It's just a really tragic tale, the story of Israel. Look at verse 4 through 8. But I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. But I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. You know no God but me. And beside me there is no Savior. It was I who knew you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. But when they had grazed, they became full. They were filled, and their heart was lifted up. Therefore, they forgot me. So I am to them like a lion, like a shepherd, I will lurk beside the way. Like a leopard, I will lurk behind the way, beside the way. I will fall upon them like a bear robbed of her cubs. I will tear open their breasts, and there I shall devour them like a lion, as a wild beast would rip them open. It's a tragic tale. God tells them and reminds them, I am God. It's almost like he's saying, I mean, in verse uh, 4, but I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. You know no God but me. It's almost like God is turning to Israel and saying, guys, you know me. You know I am your God. I'm the one who rescued you. I'm the one that pulled you up out of slavery in Egypt. I'm the one who tenderly took care of you after your complaining. And there's continual complaining. 
And yet I'm the one who took care of you. You know, you know that you have no Savior from me. It's like he's appealing to their senses. You know this. You know it to be true, Israel. You have no Savior but me. And yet in your delusion, you, you gather your craftsmen. You fund them. And you commission them to make these false gods and false saviors. But you have no Savior but me. He reminds them that he's the one that brought them out of the land of Egypt and brought them into the wilderness and was with them in the wilderness. But he also reminds them that Israel forgot about their God. They forgot about their God. They said that they were full and did not need the Lord. It's a tragic tale. It's a sad story. We see in verse 6, when they had grazed, they became full. They were filled and their heart was lifted up. Therefore, they forgot about me. They forgot about me. They got what they needed. Our bellies are full. We're experiencing prosperity. And when Israel experienced prosperity, she always thought much of herself. And she also forgot the ways of the Lord. God brings them into the promised land one generation away. After being in the promised land, they're one generation away from not knowing the story of God rescuing them out of Egypt. Just one generation did not know the ways of the Lord or what God had done for Israel. They forgot about God. Uh, they got to the point they didn't think they needed God anymore. And, you know, I can't help but to think about this parable in light of the church as a whole and God's visible church as a whole. In times of prosperity, you see this, this ebb and flow down throughout the history of the church. Like, more times than not, when the church has pressure, she just, she grows. It's like uh, N.D. Wilson talks about when, when a dandelion is stepped on, you think you're killing the dandelion, and then you realize that the, the dandelions just continue to spread. Those seeds just go into the ground. And once there's dandelions in the spring, it's like, is my whole yard a dandelion? The very next day, there's just more dandelions that grow up, and you just, they just keep growing and keep growing. Like, is my whole yard a weed? Do I not have one blade of grass, is what it feels like in spring? And it just spreads, you know, and that's kind of how it is with trying to stamp out persecution, like stamp out the church. When, when pressure comes, the church just gets refined. She, she just, the, like the imperfections just get burned away. There's so much good that comes forth from it. That's why what's happening right now in Canada, you try to shut down Dr. James Coates' church and, and their church there. And what happens that the church doubles in size within a year. Like, well, we're going to throw you all in jail. And everybody's like, I'm going to drive two hours just to get to that church. Like, we're, we're going there. Because here are people that are willing to stand. And something some, like, pe people have said this over and over. And this isn't original to me, but, but uh, fear begets fear. fear pe fearful communities create more fearful people. And courage begets courage. You have, you have courageous people, and then other, other people begin to find their spine. And they realize, wait a minute. If by the Holy Spirit's power that man can stand or that woman can stand, can't I? And the answer is yes. Yes, by God's grace you can. Stand. Courage begets courage. But sometimes in seasons of prosperity, it's easy for the church as a whole to forget the ways of God. And what ends up happening, and you see this, it's like a tale today. It's like this could be written today, not just about ancient Israel, but about the visible church globally. What happens in seasons of prosperity, we get more concerned, and the visible church can be more concerned with being well thought of by outsiders than they are being well thought of by God. 
and want to be published in the New York, New York Times or wanted to be on the bestseller list within you know, the New York Times bestseller, bestseller list or be well thought of by people of power or people of position. There's this thing in the church planning world. When you get trained to be a church planner, you want to get POIs. You want to get, you want to, get to know POIs. You know what a POI is? Wait, wait a minute. Uh, POPs, I think it is. People of power. You want to get people, there's like a thing that goes with the name. And you want to get people of influence. That's what it is. POIs, yes. People of influence. So they train you in this, how to go into a city, understand your city, and get to know people of influence. And so the idea is, if you can get in good with the people of your city, I mean, is that, it's not a bad thing to know people in your city, to know the sheriff, you want to know people in the community, that's not a bad thing. But the goal, the goal with, with church planning is you've got to know people of power and people of influence, and you've got to get them in your back pocket. And there's these strategies that go with this. And you start to peel back the, uh, you know, the layers of the onions on that. And you're like, man, that's, that is really, that's, that's ugly. That, that's turning the church literally into a business and taking marketing strategies and then just giving it to the church and saying, hey, pastor, just go be a politician, basically, and get as many people of influence in your back pocket as you can. And it's certainly good to know people in high places, but that's not the goal of the church. And in times of prosperity, it's easy for the church to want to rub shoulders with all the people of influence and power and to be looked at as being cool or in the in crowd or sitting at the cool table and forget that we are strangers and aliens in this land. And forget that we're building a different kingdom and we're watching God building this different kingdom, watching God build this different kingdom in our midst, the true kingdom. And so Israel got in this place of prosperity and they forgot the Lord. We don't need the Lord. We see Israel's plight, verse 9 through 13, chapter 13 still. He destroys you, O Israel, for you are against me, against your helper. Where now is your king to save you in all your cities? Where are your rulers, those of whom you said, give me a king and princes? I gave you a king in my anger, and I took him away in my wrath. The iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. The sin is kept in store. The pains of childbirth came for him, come for him. But he is an unwise son, for at the right time he does not present himself at the opening of the womb. God tells Israel, you're against your helper, and how messed up is it for you to be against your helper? You're against the God who's helping you. When somebody's helping you, for you to be against the one who's helping you, it's a corrupt, weird, and twisted thing. For you to have somebody that, that's come alongside that that is your helper, and then for you to be against your helper, to be against the one who's coming along to help you. Hey, I'm helping you, and for you to get, be against that helper is messed up. And God's saying, Israel, that's, that's, I'm your helper here. You're, you're warring against me as I'm helping you. In verse 10, we find that they rebel against the God who's giving that help. And they hear from God, where's your rulers? Where's your kings? They're not here to help. And then in verse 13, sin is compared to the pain of childbirth. Israel does not want to come out. They want to stay in the darkness. They don't present themselves in right time. And because of that, we see a picture of ransom, but we see also a picture of judgment. Verse 14, I shall ransom them from the power of Sheol. I shall redeem them from death. O death, where is, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion is hidden from my eyes. Though he may flourish among his brothers, the east wind, the wind of the Lord shall come and Rising from the wilderness, and his fountain shall dry up. His spring shall be parched. It shall strip his treasury of every precious thing. Samaria shall bear her guilt, because she has rebelled against her God. 
They shall fall by way of the sword. Their little ones shall be dashed to pieces and their pregnant women ripped open. Again, staggering statements of judgment. This is that difficult word from the Lord to hear. In verse 14 to 16, though, we hear that ransom from death is coming. Yet again, we get, I mean, sprinkled throughout the book of Hosea, just the best of all seasonings, the truth of the gospel, the promise of redemption. And we see that there is ransom from death. God's going to redeem them from death. And death will not have its plagues. The sting will be taken away and compassion will not be hidden from God's eyes. What is that but a pointer to Jesus? There's no other context in all the scriptures that we know about that these kinds of things can flow. But from the springs, that is the redemption of Jesus Christ, the living water. And still yet, Samaria is going to bear her guilt for her rebellion and judgment's coming. Assyria is coming and it will be brutal. Assyria is coming and it will be brutal. We stated from the first three chapters up all the way through this that the story of Israel is the story of every single person that's ever lived. It's every nation. It's every people. There are uniquenesses that are there only for Israel, but it's, it's, a, it's a micro or a macro story, and every single individual that's ever lived is the micro story of that macro story. It's, it's rebellion against God. It's God's benevolence to mankind and mankind's rebellion against his benevolence, striving against the one who's our helper. And mankind from the garden forward has made their decision. They, they've chosen to rebel against God. That's why nobody's born into a morally neutral state. We're all born into a state of rebellion. We're trapped in our trespasses and sins. Their story is our story. And we've heard the matter. Before we turn to Hosea's final plea, we've heard the matter. And here's the matter in sum. Israel and Judah are in trouble. <laughs> That's the, the big idea. Israel and Judah are in trouble. It's the small story of the history of the world. Mankind is in trouble. The visible church has her problems. These are the connections we've been making with the Old Testament people of God and now the New Testament visible people of God, those who claim to be the people of God around the world. And we find, you know what? There's a whole lot of trouble. There's a whole lot of things in the visible church that are messed up. And if you're here within our church long enough, you'll see that we've got our issues too. To be a part of a local church is to open yourself up to the possibility of pain. We've talked about this. It's to open others to the possibility of pain because hurting others intentionally or non-intentionally is going to be a part of your life. There's going to be things in your life that pain that you bring that you didn't even intend to. To be a part of a, of, of a sinful group of people who still have indwelling sin is to be a part of a, a community that's dependent upon Jesus. We're not going to walk the road of Israel here thinking, look at us, look how special we are. We have to be honest that if you're going to be here long term as a part of this church family, that there's going to be some pain. That's why we all desperately need Jesus. Isn't that the risk of any sort of relationship, is that in any sort of relationship, there's, there's pain that could be there. That's why in your life, the most pain that's going to be inflicted in your life, that you're going to experience in your life, is the restless nights thinking about your kids and grandkids. It's going to be the arguments that you have with your wife or your children. It's going to be the pain that can be inflicted from family or the, the closest people to you. And within the church, you're going to find that there's some difficult things. The visible church has her problems. So what should be done about this? We're going to slow down, get out of the airplane, and we're going to take a little drive, rent a car, take a little drive, and we're going to just close things up in this book, looking at chapter 14, and we're going to see Hosea's final appeal. 
Look at verse 1. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with your words and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity, accept what is good, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. This is Hosea's final plea. Return to the Lord. It's almost like you can hear Hosea wherever he's standing as the herald of God, wherever he's addressing the congregation or God's people. And it's like he's crying out and you can see him screaming to the top of his lungs, a good old open air preacher like George Whitfield. You're standing up and, and declaring, return to the Lord. Please come back to him. Turn. Turn to the Lord. And he digs down deep. His diaphragm expands. His lungs breathe out and his voice goes out as loud as he possibly can as he makes his final plea. Please return to the Lord. And instead of returning to him with empty words, take your words and get some right action as well. Words and action. Sacrifice with true sacrifice. Be repentant from the heart. Take with your, your, your words and actually return to the Lord. Now return is a theme that's constant in this book. We hear the words return to the Lord in chapter 2, verse 7, and in verse 9, in chapter 3, verse 5, in chapter 5, verse 4, in chapter 7, verse 10, and 16, in chapter 11, verse 5, and in chapter 12, verse 6. And in this chapter, we see it three times in verse 1, verse 2, and in verse 7. Return. Please, Israel, return to the Lord. Today, we could see, again, not exactly a one-to-one -one comparison, but to the church as a whole, even in this country, return to the Lord. Please return to Him. Don't be Christians in name only. Churches in this city that have long walked away from biblical truth, been embarrassed about God's Word, and now have embraced all sorts of evil things, and they still bear the name of Christ, at least they claim they do, stop that. Return to the Lord. How awesome would it be if every single church downtown that's meeting right now would stop walking in step with the devil and would repent and return to the Lord and instead of dragging Christ's name through the mud would have old Jesus as king? How awesome would that be if revival would hit the city and every single city around here? And all these churches that are claiming the name of Christ that are not proclaiming Christ, how amazing would it be if God's people would actually return to Christ not just in word only but also in deed? And friends, if people, just in this country, those who claim to name, of Christ, name the name of Christ, just claim to be Christians, if they would return to the Lord, we would literally receive, like watch with our own eyes, revival all across this world, all across this land, all across this region, all across our city. Take actions with your words. What a message for the visible church. Return to the Lord, repent, come home, stop dragging the name of Christ through the mud. Say to the Lord, take away all iniquity. God, take it all away. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Hosea knew the truth that only that iniquity can only be taken away by God. Forgiveness for the things that we have done is possible. Forgiveness, if you're in here and you don't know Jesus, forgiveness is possible for you. No matter what sins that have been committed, I read a really interesting book about Steve McQueen. You know, Steve McQueen, the king of cool from, you know, years ago, and he died in 1980. He uh, was in The Great Escape. After we watched this last Star Wars movie, we're going to watch, we're in a Star Wars kick right now. And uh, now we're going to watch The Great Escape. 
Well, Steve McQueen, three months before he was, he was uh, diagnosed with terminal cancer, he became a Christian. He had a stunt man that gave him the book Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis and Basic Christianity by Dr. John Stott. And he read those, and that was like a decade before he became a Christian. He became a Christian, and then three months later, he was diagnosed with terminal cancer, and ten months later, he passed away. He was a Christian before he died. A Christian. He was saved. The king of cool was saved. And uh, McQueen was talking to a pastor one time, and he said, I, and McQueen, he has a legendary, he was, all, he was terrible. Like, he did a lot of really, really, like, he had women like crazy. He did a lot of bad, illegal substances, did a lot of, a lot of bad stuff. And he was talking to a pastor one time, and this, the author of this book actually, he traced down this pastor and actually talked to him, and he said, would you please tell me about your meeting? And this is the meeting that Steve McQueen told him that, that, I want to, that I've become a Christian. And uh, he was talking with this pastor, and, and he said, yes, yeah, Steve was burdened deeply by all the sins that he had committed. And he, he wanted to know if, if Jesus actually forgives all of our sins. And this is what burdened the king of cool. Like, and you look at a picture of McQueen, you're like, yeah, that, that dude's cool. And Steve McQueen had all of his sins forgiven, every single one of them. And there was a list that was a laundry list. I mean, it was huge. And here's the truth. No matter who you are, no matter what you have done, no matter what that is, there is a way for your iniquity to be forgiven, for the, the sins that you have committed to be forgiven. For the Christian, death is an upgrade. But for the non-Christian, if you don't know Jesus and you die, I'm telling you, it's bad news. And you're hearing about it today. And if you don't know the Lord and you die without him and you're experiencing the wrath of God, you'll remember my words right now calling you to come to Jesus telling you that you can have your sins forgiven. All of them. Every single one of them. And I want you to know that. I don't want you to die without them. Hosea knew that there's only one way to have your iniquities forgiven. It's what Steve McQueen experienced, and it's what you can experience. Forgiveness of sins is possible. You have not sinned so much. For those who think, no, I've sinned too much. God can't save me. Who do you think you are? Do you think you're more powerful than God? You think you can out God? Pride. Verse 2b, Hosea calls them uh, and, and tells them, turn and sacrifice with the blood of bulls and goats. Sacrifice, not just for sacrifice's sake, but do it by returning to the Lord. And Hosea drops some truth bombs. Look at verse 3. Assyria will not save us. We will not ride on horses and we will say no more, our God, to the work of our hands. In you, the orphan finds mercy. The orphan finds mercy. Praise God. Praise God. Hosea brings some truth. Israel, Assyria will not save you. There's no king of the earth that's the answer to the world's problems. Please hear me say that. It is easier. I've seen more than any, any year in any two years ever the importance of politics and having people in high places that actually believe the word of God. It's really important. But I will never make the mistake, and I don't think, and by God's grace, we will never make the mistake of believing that your political candidate or our political candidate or this guy or that guy or whatever is the answer to the world's problems. There's corruption all the way down, and our only answer is for all people around this world to know that Jesus is king and bow down to him. 
Jesus is the one that's reigning and ruling, and he is our king that we put our trust in. And, and Hosea wants them to see, if they'll turn, they'll finally see that the work of their hands is not their God's. This is the Garden of Eden on display. It's the story of the human heart. This is what Israel was doing. And we will say no more, our God, to the work of our hands. This is merit, human merit. What we can accomplish on our own, the human ability. And God's saying, if you return, if you return Israel, you will stop saying our God to the work of our hands. Friends, this is every religion in the world. This is to this day the Catholic Church. Looking at human merit and thinking much of it. Saying, I can do this. I have strength. I have power. When we look to our hands and we think much of our own abilities, independent from God, we're doing what Israel did of old. This is trading the glory of God for the glory of our hands, the glory of our work. Trading the work of God for the work of our hands. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It doesn't belong to our hands. We cannot merit anything from God except wrath. And Israel had this problem looking at their accomplishments and thinking much of what they've done. Look what I can do. And even the Catholic Church says, look what I can do with the Lord's help. That's how I get saved. We don't get saved with the Lord's help. We get saved by God. God doesn't help us get saved. God saves us. It's a big, de it's a big deal. To say that God helps me get saved it is totally different than saying God saves sinners. And they're looking at the work of their hands and saying, our God, and Hosea is saying, if you turn, you'll no longer say that. You'll know that God is God and we are not. His mercy is there for kings and orphans. His mercy is there for kings and orphans. The orphan is like the lowest part of the social scale down throughout the history of the world. They have no strength, they have no power, they have no ability, and yet God's mercy is even there for the orphan, the lowest of the low in society. The orphan that doesn't have any power, doesn't have any wealth, doesn't have any private property, doesn't claim any power in a community. And in God, the orphan even can find mercy. Kings in high places down to the orphan, there's mercy in God and in God alone. And they'll recognize this if they turn. In verse 4, we get these precious promises as we, as we turn the corner and we think about what God will one day do. We get these prophetic promises and these even messianic prophecy, prophecies. Look at verse 4. I will hear, heal their apostasy, and I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. Apostasy. I'm going to heal that. I'm going to take care of my people who are my people in name, turning from them. I'm going to heal that. And what God's going to do is create a people who are obedient to him. And I want you to hear the promises of this new covenant, this new covenant time that we are experiencing right now. How will God heal them of their apostasy? What's God going to do to them to help them and to keep them faithful? Well, we read it. Already, the beginning of the service today, I'm going to start in verse 33. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it in their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. 
And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each brother saying, know the Lord. So in the Old, Old Testament, the Old Covenant, God's people were evangelizing within God's people. It was like they're saying, hey, you got to know the Lord because they were Jews in, in, in ethnicity only. But they had to tell people about the promises of God. Now the promise is that no longer will they have to each teach one another saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. God's saying that I'm going to do something in them. I'm going to be their God. I'm going to put my law in their hearts and I will write it there. In Ezekiel, we see this in chapter 36. I want you to read this even more explicitly. How's God going to heal their apostasy, and this is great hope for you. For the Christian that just struggles with sanctification, anybody else in here? A show of hands here, the Christian that just struggles sometimes with sanctification. Just from a little bit to a lot. Listen to this. God will keep you. And there may be times of wandering in your life. And there's going to be times that sin, it feels like, is just beating you to a pulp. But he'll preserve you, and he'll keep you. This is the promise of what the Holy Spirit's going to do. God's going to heal their apostasy. How? Consider this from chapter 36, verse 25 to 27. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. That's what we uniquely get to experience. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. How is God going to heal their apostasy? Well, he's going to send God the Holy Spirit into them. And that Holy Spirit is going to cause them that's us who experience these promises. Cause his people to obey his rules. And there may be seasons, like I said, of your sanctification where it feels like it's this, it's up and down, and it's up and down, and it's a roller coaster. But God is causing you to be careful to follow his ways from the inside out. You have a new heart, a heart of flesh. You don't have a heart of stone anymore. You've been born again, and you will be preserved. The apostasy's healed. And for those who do apostatize, that walk away... Because they didn't know him. They were never a part of us. They walked away. They were not really of us. And so God is saying, I'm going to heal their apostasy. There's going to be a day when the new heart's going to come, the Holy Spirit's going to come, and that's how he's going to heal their apostasy. And we know that this is going to be done for the true Israel, the chosen by God who are believing in faith. Not just the ethnic Jews, not just Israel out there. Those who are Jew in name only, as we've been talking about, they don't have the new heart. They're not circumcised to the flesh unless they're born again. Unless they know the one true God through Jesus Christ. And God says, I'm going to love them freely and my anger has turned from them. And this is the forbearance of God and this is the promises of God of, of future work. Because of the propitiation of Christ, Christ the wrath of God can be removed. The anger of God can be removed in Christ and Christ alone. The only way the wrath of God gets removed in this life is through the cross of Christ. The, uh, the cross of Christ absorbs, it diverts. That's the, doctrine of, uh, the Christian doctrine of propitiation. If this is the cross, the wrath of God is coming. 
The wrath of God is coming, and the cross propitiates that wrath, diverts it, and God's people are back here. God's people are back here behind the cross, and the wrath of God comes, and it goes around. It's diverted from those who are in Christ Jesus, those chosen by grace. Right here, right here. They're not experiencing God's wrath because the propitiation has diverted God's wrath from them. And God's saying that his anger can be done away with, and it's only done away with in Christ. And so now Israel should turn, they should thrive, they should live. How is this going to happen? Look at verse 5. I will be, this is what God's saying, this, this is now future, talking about what God is doing in the future. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His Shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive and his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow and they shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the, the wine of Lebanon. There's going to be a day that Israel is going to thrive again. The dew is going to be life. There's going to be good fruit. There's going to be health within her. Let me just tell you this interesting truth. The true Israel, the spiritual Israel, includes ethnic Jews. Praise God. You know right now there is an estimated number by answersintorah.com.something.com. There's an estimated 2.5 million Messianic Jews in the world. 2.5 million. Now there's a lot that are not. But 2.5 million, that's, that's a lot of people. A bro, that's a lot of brothers and sisters that come... Who have, who have discovered by the grace of God, Jesus was the Messiah. Amen. Jesus is the Messiah. And now, as we include all spiritual Israel, of which they are a part, they were a part of the physical bloodline, but now they are part of the spiritual bloodline. When we include ethnic Jews who have become the spiritual Israel and Gentile Christians, we get the spiritual Israel now. We're, we're talking the spiritual Israel all around. And for all of us, God does this for the spiritual Israel. God makes us beautiful like the olive tree and the fragrance like Lebanon. I will be due to Israel. And I don't think that's now talking about ethnic Israel. I think this is the spiritual Israel from the thread that's been in and throughout the book of Hosea. He shall be, become like the lily. He shall take root with the trees of Lebanon. He shall, his, his shoot shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive tree and his fragrance like Lebanon. And for us, God makes his people beautiful like the olive and like fragrance from Lebanon. Lebanon was beautiful wine country. It was lush. It was pretty. It was full of water and life. And the grapes grew and the wine flowed. And God's saying just like that beautiful, healthy country, Israel will once again be like this. There will be beauty in her midst and health in her midst. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 through 16 says this. Connecting some of these dots. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphant procession. And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved. And among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance of death to death. To the other a fragrance of life to life. We are in fact this wonderful beautiful fragrance of Lebanon. We are experiencing the life that the Holy Spirit leads. And even though the church is this busted up place, here's what you find pockets of all throughout this globe. Pockets of healthy people being nourished by the Holy Spirit. Being cared for by the chief shepherd. Being loved and, and seeing good and beautiful fruit. And you know what? We're a part of that. 
We're a part of that. There's some beautiful fruit happening here. There's some really beautiful fruit happening in our midst. Um, the, 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 this month, the Table Talk magazine is down here. I was going to tell you about it. And I, I, do I have it here, honey? Yeah, the Table Talk magazine is called, uh, there's a, it's Church Conflict. And I read a book years ago about antagonists in the church. And it's, the church is notorious for like mean snakes, basically. You know what I mean? There's always like a terrible deacon, a mean old lady, or a bunch of mean old ladies that just are, are very mean. It's always the old ladies, right? Chicken lady, remember chicken lady? There's always old ladies in the church that everybody's intimidated by. You know, it's like, don't cross her. And there's always real, like not always, but a lot of times there's weak, passive men that the best marriage counsel they have is to tell young men, your wife's always right. And, and like you see this all over the place where there's like a, a mean domineering man that nobody will confront that other men are terrified of. And you just see church conflict. It's like there's church conflict. And you know what? We're by the grace of God. And we're, we're listen, there's problems here. And they're going to it's going to these problems and issues are going to come up over the years. And we're going to see things that need to be corrected. We're going to have them. We don't have any chicken ladies we don't have any mean, domineering men that are controlling everything. We don't have any scary older women that everybody just avoids. Like, oh, you know, don't cross her. We don't have any of that. There's beautiful fruit happening in our midst. There are families that are growing. There's marriages that are being, being restored. Certainly there's other marriages that are struggling and stumbling along. There are people that are experiencing the, the, the difficulties of, of normal life. You know, singles that are struggling, even in being single, like there, there are things that are hard in this life. People that are grieving, for goodness sake, there's all sorts of things. But there is beautiful fruit happening in our midst. There's really beautiful things happening. And I'm thankful to be a part of it. We're seeing this. God can make his church and is, is making his church this wonderful fragrance of Lebanon where it's just like life, nourishment, joy, brotherhood, sisterhood, Family, it's an awesome thing. They shall be like the fame of Lebanon, and they shall flourish. And so Hosea wraps it up with two verses, and he calls out to Ephraim, or God first, and then, Ephra, and then, and then Hosea. And God tells them, in light of all this, in light of what I'm, I'm doing and going to do, um, idols are silly, return to me. Idols are silly, silly return to me. Ephraim, verse 8 what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. Fruit comes from me. Idols are silly. Return to me. Here's one of the big themes of Hosea. God will not bless idolatry. In any visible church in this country or throughout this world that makes idolatry their modus operandi, the way they just function, where that's the culture and the air they breathe, God will shut that church down. Just a matter of time. That's why right now the PCUSA is dying off. That's why right now a lot of these Lutheran denominations that are really liberal are dying off. That's why right now the Methodist church is dying off. That's why the Southern Baptist Convention and some of her folly recently is going to end up being dying off if we don't return to the Lord. That's why individual churches all throughout this country, you see massive big buildings and nobody's in them. It's because idolatry is the way they just function. Yeah, God says this, but what's that matter? But God's people know something else. Let the wise understand. Let those who have ears 
let them hear. Let them have a heart to hear. Let them who by God's grace have had their eyes opened, let them see. Let the reader understand. Look at verse 9. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them, but the transgressors stumble in them. We're about done. Let the wise understand. Those who have wisdom, those who have the Spirit of God, understand this. God's ways are right. This is what those who are steeped in idolatry, the frog in the kettle, don't recognize. This is what those who are trusting in the work of their hands and declaring, my God, don't recognize. They think their ways and their thoughts are higher than God's ways and God's thoughts. They think that the work of their hands is more, empower, more important and more powerful than the work of God's hands. They trust in their own understanding. It's like the verse reads, lean not on his understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge yourself, and then I will bless my own steps. It's like, wait, wait a minute. I thought the people of God are to lean not on their own understanding, and in all their, all their ways acknowledge him, and he will direct their steps. Yeah, I think that's how the verse reads. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And so the wise step up through, by, through God-given wisdom. And we listen. And we want to discern. And we want to know the ways of the Lord. And we want to look. The ways of the Lord are right. And what Israel should have said is, yes, that's right. Our ways are not right. God's ways are right. And what we have the unique opportunity as God is bringing forth this fruit in us is to say, yes, Hosea, that's right. God's ways are right. And I'm continuing to learn that. I'm continuing to learn that I am not the answer to the universe. I'm continuing to learn that I have to trust what God has to say more than what I think and feel. And isn't that difficult? To trust the Lord more than the, what I think, what I feel. The way of the world is to live their life according to their highest authority, which is their thoughts and feelings. What I think and what I feel, that's king. But Christians say, no, 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 I lay that down. And we're going to acknowledge that God ways, God's ways are right. And we're going to acknowledge that the upright walk in them. Transgressors stumble in the ways of the Lord. Transgressors look at the things of God. They look at God's word. They look at the life of Christ. They look at how God has wired things to be. And they say, that's not right. I'm not going to follow that. I don't like that. Or I'm going to pick and choose what I, what I like and don't like. We're going to do the Thomas Jefferson thing where... You, you get your Bible and you get all the supernatural things out of it. Nope, nope, nope. I don't like that. I don't like that. I don't like that. He had a lot of contemporaries that were the opposite. Most of our founding fathers didn't do what Thomas Jefferson did. But Thomas Jefferson didn't like the supernatural. That Unitarian stream of thought is that, 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 that everything's natural. Nothing's supernatural. And the transgressors just look at the things of God. They say, no, I don't like that. It doesn't feel right to me. And so they don't walk in them. Transgressors stumble over the ways of God. They read some of the difficult things we've read in Hosea, and they say, I don't like that. I don't like it. But the, operate, the, 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 the upright walk in them. So let's apply wisdom. Now, wisdom applied. This is, a, this is applied theology. When you take the wisdom that God has given you, the knowledge that God has given you, and you find out through, through the help of the Holy Spirit how to apply it. Let's look at the whole book of Hosea, and let's now apply this wisdom. Some of this is so simple. God is right. Always. God is always right. He's never wrong. Ever. 
in his judgments, they're ne- it's never wrong. Why God does or does not do something, our perception of it, our feeling about it, he should have or he shouldn't have, that's, that's what's wrong, our perceptions. So we have to acknowledge, no, God's right. God's right about this. Another thing we need to understand is uh, what he says goes. We get our marching orders from him. And so whatever he tells us to do, whatever we bump into in God's word, it's like the proper response to, to the ways of God and the words of God is like, okay, cool. God, whatever you say, whatever you think, I trust you. I'm going to walk in your ways. You're right. I'm, I'm going to, with your help, do this. Third thing we need to walk away with with applied theology, and this is a, an appeal to everybody, every, everybody that bears the name of Christ, whether they are a believer or not, actually, is that God's people should always return to the Lord and his ways. We always should be people willing to return back to the Lord. Let's go back to the word, and let's return to the Lord and his ways. Let's not be like the city of Ephesus and the church in Ephesus who forgot their first love. Let us always be willing to return to the Lord and rediscover what he would have us do and rediscover what he has done for us in Christ. And then if we're going to imply, apply wisdom, um, we're going to recognize that that's the upright thing to do is return to the Lord. Uh, we, we have to love God's ways more than our ways. Um, a few final things. We need to, as Proverbs chapter 3, verse 4, I believe, says, we have to lean not on our own understanding. Uh, Israel leaned on their own understanding over and over again. And Christians, as we're bearing good fruit, we don't lean on our understanding. We trust in the Lord. We don't want to be like the unrighteous. We don't want to be like the transgressors. They're doing something else. The transgressors are stumbling because of God's ways and God's word. They don't like what God has to say and what God tells them to do. Transgressors think that their ways are better than God's ways, and it's quite foolish. It's quite foolish. And so the call today is return to the Lord. Where in your life do you need to return to the Lord? Is it rediscovering your first love of Christ? As we sing these songs, we're going to have some content to think about. Wherever the Holy Spirit leads you, follow and obey. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this time. We thank you for the book of Hosea. We've had our ups and downs. We've, we've seen a lot of things that have been even difficult, but God, we've seen really good things. And your ways are higher than our ways. Your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And we want to acknowledge you and walk in obedience to you. And God, we pray that for this community. I pray that you'd continue to, to bring dew in the morning spiritually for us. Continue to make us like the region of Lebanon with lush life, with vineyards that are healthy, with the wine flowing. Make us a people that continue to bear good fruit.